when it comes to God, some people have a real difficulty relating to him. I, I hear people say, that, I just can't relate to God. He's so abstract. He's so large and great. And uh, I'm just me. I have a hard time relating to him. And if you're feeling that way, if you ever feel that way, uh, I have something uh, to say to you this morning that I hope will open the door for you. Others of us have a difficult, difficult time praying. I know some of us feel like, you know, I know I'm supposed to pray. I know it's a Christian. It's something, you know, supposed to be doing. But I have a hard time uh, actually praying. Don't know what to say about God. Don't know what to speak to God. And if you ever feel that way, what we're going to be looking at this morning is that same something actually to help you. The same thing. Others of you who may be here, you say, you know, I see people, um, maybe a relative or friend that I know here, get really excited about this Jesus stuff, and, and uh, I don't know about this Christianity thing. You know, if I was honest, I'd say, really, I don't really know if God is even there. I don't know if God exists. And if he does exist, I'm, uh, I'm not... I'm not sure he would really have time or to be concerned about me or my problems. You know, he has more important things to do. You might feel like I, you're, you're most comfortable with the, with the label agnostic. And even if God is there, he, he, he probably doesn't, you know, he has other things to do. So being so big, being God, right? And, you know, that, that way of thinking actually goes back a long ways. If you feel that way, you're not alone. It goes all the way back to Aristotle. In Aristotle's teaching, God was so great, so big, so perfect, that he couldn't even notice us. Like We, we wouldn't even be noticeable to him because he's so perfect and, and so great and so awesome. And so we, had, we need to have the demiurges. And, you know, in Greek thinking, the demiurges created the world and us and, you know, this stuff, this stuff. That's, that was for the demiurges. But God was too big and too perfect to even be concerned about these things, okay? Now, if that's you, you're in that kind of agnostic camp this morning. I have something to say to you, and it's the same something that we're going to be looking at. It's actually something that we learn through a prayer in the Bible that we're going to be reading, one of the Psalms. So please stand with me, if you would, as we hear now the reading from Psalm 145. One of the last psalms, we're going to be hearing the first 10 verses and then uh, the end of the psalm. Let's, let's listen. I will extol you, O oh my, oh my God, O oh King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great, great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. 
He also will hear the cry and save them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh shall bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you, Autumn. All right, it's great to have uh, the children with us today and children. Um, I'm going to ask you to draw some things <clears throat> while, while I'm speaking here. The first drawing that I want you to draw is grasshopper. So if you have uh, some materials to draw with, I want you to draw a grasshopper. And next to the grasshopper, I want you to draw you. Or it's much bigger, hopefully, than the grasshopper. And I want the grasshopper to be looking at you. And then I want you to show on your drawing what the grasshopper is thinking as the grasshopper looks at you. That's your first picture, your first assignment today as we are thinking about this subject. And uh, for the adults, uh, before I begin, I'd like to give credit here to a man named Herman Bavink. This is a Dutch theologian who lived in the 1800s. And he is just amazing. He, uh, he writes, his, his work is called The Reformed Dogmatics. And in his writings, he is, uh, he's amazing, not only for his, his scholarship, his erudition, but also for the love that he has for God in his writing. And it just comes through his pages. So if you like that kind of thing, you like reading theology, uh, it's, it's recently been translated into English, and uh, you can read it. If you do, you will recognize Herman Bavink in my treatment this morning. I wanted to give him the credit. All right. Now, these different problems I've been talking about, they all converge on this one thing, and what this psalm tells us about God. What does it tell us about God? Well, it reaches an important point in verse 3. When we get to verse 3, we learn, we read of God's gadol. Gadol is a word for great in Hebrew, or uh, greatness, gadolah, gadolah of God. And what the psalmist tells us there, does he not, is that his greatness is unsearchable. You see that in verse 3? His greatness is unsearchable. And this is one of the places where we learn that we really cannot appreciate God. We really can't. He is so huge. He is so great. He is so magnificent that we actually really can't wrap our minds around that. We can't really get into it. We can't really know God. His greatness, he says, is unsearchable. So those of you who feel like you can't relate to God, you're right. <laughs> you actually can't relate to God. He is too great and above and beyond us. It's unsearchable, his greatness, right? And this is something that's taught in the Old Testament. You go to a place like 1 Kings 8 where King Solomon has finished the magnificent temple that he's built. And he, as he finishes his temple, he prays. And this is the temple. This is, you know, supposed to be God's house, right? This is where the temple is where God will dwell. And he finishes the temple and he prays and he says, you know, actually, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, God. Actually, we can get right down to it. I built this house. He spent a lot of money on it. But this, the, the highest heavens cannot contain you. You see it in places like in the New Testament where Paul is speaking, 1 Timothy 6. And he uses this phrase, I think it's so beautiful. He's talking about how no one can see God. Probably he's, he's speaking, you know, commenting on Exodus 33, how no one can actually see God. And the way he says it is, he dwells 
in unapproachable light. He dwells in unapproachable light. You can't even, you can't even approach that. The way God really is, he is so far beyond us. And so the prophet says, this is Isaiah, the prophet, prophet in, in Isaiah 40. He says, um, as a person is to a grasshopper, so God is to us. Okay, children, that's why you're drawing what you're drawing, because Isaiah says that, actually. Isaiah 40, as a person is to a grasshopper, so God is to us almost only even more so. In fact, Isaiah, same chapter, says, there is, there's really nothing, there's really no one to which we can compare God. There's nothing to compare him to. Probably the, the oldest book in the Bible is, is uh, the oldest writing we have in the Bible is the book of Job. Old, old book. And the book of Job says, this is, this is what Job says, quote, how small a whisper do we hear of him? The thunder of his power, who can understand? Unquote. Implied answer, nobody, nobody can. So in the end, friends, what, what we have to do is really throw up our hands along with Job. Actually, Job says it this way, Job 36. He says, quote, God is great and we know him not. Unquote. <laughs> that's it. And that's verse three. God is great and we, we just don't know him. Well, you would think if that's true, that the, that the psalm would end there right? It's basically, you can't, you can't really, it's unsearchable, his greatness. You can't speak of him, he's unspeakable. So you would think the psalm ends there, but it doesn't. Because what he says next is, well, we're going to talk about it, <laughs> right? Verse four, generations shall talk to each other about it. Verse five, on that glorious splendor of majesty, I will meditate. I will concentrate on it. Verse six, I will, actually, I will actually declare his, his gudalah, his greatness, that same thing that was unspeakable. Verse 6, I'm going to declare it. And Ivy says, I'm going to proclaim it. Verse 7, I will sing about it. And this is, this is how the psalm ends, right? Verse 21, my mouth will speak his praise. So even though we can't, we can't comprehend his greatness, we're going to still speak about it. Even though it's unspeakable, we're going to talk about it. How do we do that? How do we do that? Being grasshoppers as we are. Well, I think the answer is, is, is given in verse 10. What does it say? It says, the works of God themselves will praise him. You see that in verse 10? The works of God will praise him. That is what God has made, what he's done, will allow us to speak the unspeakable, will allow us to, to understand and comprehend and grasp what is otherwise incomprehensible. So you think about what the logic of the psalm is. Ergo, friends, we know the unknowable God. We speak of the unspeakable greatness through what he's made, through what he has done. Now, why he would do this, why he would help us to understand, why he would condescend, because that's what he does. He condescends so that we can understand him in our grasshopper way. 
Why he would do that is, you know, there, the reason for that is just as incomprehensible as, as God himself. But this is what he does. And so in Scripture, we see Scripture equating him with, naming him in a way that we could say was maybe creation morphic. <laughs> we could put it that way. Creation morphic. And so, so children, what I'm going to do, you're going to hear me mention different things. And for this next part of the sermon, what I want you to do is to hear, listen, and when you hear something that, that you really like, I want you to draw that thing. Okay, of all the things that I mentioned, I want, you to, I want you to draw that thing that you really like. I want you to do that three times with three different things. Because the Bible teaches us that we describe God by what he's made. And so what we find is that God is depicted as even the inorganic creation. So in the Bible, he is called a sun, a sunrise. He is the morning star. He is a light. He is a shadow. He is a fountain. He's a fire. He's a rock. He's a stone. In fact, he's a living stone, whatever that means. <laughs> he is called these different things. He's food. He's drink. He's bread. He's water. Did you ever think about that? Tell me, is there anything more silly than calling God a stone? Are the scriptures casual at calling God a shadow or food? Is that, is that disrespectful? Things, things we know simply in our experience. And not only that, things, even things that people have made. He's a torch. He's a horn. He's a shield. He's a banner. He's a way. He's a hiding place. He's a stronghold building. He's a building foundation. <laughs> He's a gate. He's a temple. And you know, in every one of these, when the Bible speaks, it's, it's saying directly about God. He is this, or one of the divine persons. He is this, or it's God himself saying, I am a gate, you know, or I am a temple. Things like that. None of them say, you know, God isn't really a rock. None of them stop and say, you know, he's, he's, he's like a rock in some ways. And he's not like a rock in other ways. He doesn't, doesn't speak that way. In other words, he, he, the Bible doesn't speak the way theologians speak. Theologians want us to be very careful and, and honor verse 3. So we want to, want to make sure that we really get that God's greatness is unsearchable. And so they say, you know, don't be careful about the way that you, that you speak. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't honor God's greatness by limiting the metaphors. Instead, it does it by multiplying the metaphors. So that we say to ourselves, we say, you know, if he's a rock and he's a shadow and he's a temple then it must mean he's, he's not any of these things, but, but each of these things speaks him, speaks him to us. So we could say, 
God is like nothing in creation, but everything in creation speaks him to us, speaks truth about him. Because the Bible doesn't stop there. It has the audacity to speak about God, to literally equate him with the organic creation. He is a root. He is a vine. He is a branch. He's like an evergreen cypress. You know, the Bible in many places talks about how God is like certain animals. He's like an eagle. He's like a hen. He's like a moth, actually, in Hosea. <laughs> a moth, yeah, you can draw a moth if you want. He's like a bear. He's like a leopard. He is a lion. He is a lamb. Hmm. Do you think it's disrespectful to speak of God this way? Do you think that it assaults his holiness, create an image in our head of God as a lamb? But wait, the most common namings, the most common namings that we find in the Bible are anthropomorphic. What do I mean? I mean that God doesn't have a body, right? But the scriptures cite his bodily organs. It speaks of his face, his ear, his eyes, his eyelids. There is the apple of his eye. Scripture talks about his nostrils, his mouth, his lips, his tongue. Scripture speaks of his back, his arm, his hand, his right hand, of his finger, his foot, his bosom, his heart, his intestines, his soul. Yes, kids, you can draw his intestines. You can draw the intestines if you want. You know, some of these are spoken in prayer as a direct address to God. Some of them are, are descriptions. Some of them are God speaking himself, my foot, my arm. Have you ever come to terms with that? How, how the Bible exuberantly pictures God in terms of us, that God pictures his finger, his nostrils, in spite of the fact that we are not God, we are not like God. In fact, we are just, as the prophet says, quote, man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he, unquote, says Isaiah. Behold, our tutor, the scriptures, every human emotion God is pictured as having. He rejoices. He is grieved. He is provoked to anger. He is wrathful and furious. He fears. He gets jealous. He hates. He loathes. He's affectionate. He's vengeful. And most of these emotive expressions are God speaking of himself. 
Now, is this really going on with him? Being so great? Or is he speaking in grasshopper terms to us? Why does he do that? That's the question I want to press on you this morning. Why does he care about expressing himself in these grasshopper terms? And it's not just silly emotions. Human actions are ascribed to God. He sees, he hears, he smells, he tastes. He tests, he investigates, he intends, he makes judgments. He remembers, he is asked not to forget. He speaks, he calls, he answers, he commands, he rebukes. He shows up to be a witness. He works, he rests, he writes, he engraves, he, puts, he places seals on things. He sits down, he rises up, he walks, he goes places, he visits, he pass by, passes by, he meets with people, he abandons, he hits, he afflicts, he corrects, he disciplines. He condemns, he casts off, he lays waste, he wipes out, he gathers together, he scatters, he spits out of his mouth, he destroys, he kills, he binds up wounds, he washes and cleans, he wipes things, he anoints, he clothes, he equips and arms with weapons, he decks with ornaments, he crowns. All of these things we know from being human. You know, I once had someone say to me after a conference I did, a person, a guy said to me, you know, you are so disrespectful because, this is what he said, because you depict an image of God that is based on created things. He said, you're so disrespectful. And I'm thinking, that is exactly what the Bible does. <laughs> That's precisely what it does. It's always doing that. So is it disrespectful to depict God as resting, as, as, as working, as spitting? Or, and this is what I said to him, or... Does God establish his greatness in a different way than you do? Does the Bible do it in a different way than you do? And does it do it for a certain reason, that certain something that we need, we need so desperately to understand? God would so prove to us this one thing, this something that I'm talking about, the why that he's doing this, that he often is called by or calls himself by certain professions that we have, you know, just jobs that we have. So in the Bible, he is a lawyer. He's a judge. He's a lawgiver. He's a man of war. He's a hero. He's a pioneer. He's a gardener. He's a shepherd. He's a physician, and of course, he's a king. 
And in connection with this, Scripture mentions his stuff, talks about his weapon, his bow, his arrow, his sword, his shield, his seat, his footstool, his book, his seal, his wagon, his chariot. God has all this stuff. (laughs) His inheritance, his treasure, his banner, his rod, his scepter, his throne. And most striking of all, God is depicted as, equated with our most intimate relationships. So he is father, he is brother, he is son. He is husband. He's also, you know, an excited bridegroom. This comes up a few times in the Old Testament. Very excited bridegroom. And it's intensified in the New Testament. Every time the word bridegroom is used by Jesus Christ, he's speaking about himself. Every time. So should we call God these things? Obviously, he's, he's not. And yet, we are encouraged to speak of him in these terms. Should we do this? And I think what verse 6 is saying, that yes, we should. This is the way we speak of his greatness. Because we see something of the artist in every painting. God reveals himself in his works of art. And especially in his masterpiece, which is you. That is the way he desires to express himself. And he gives us many paintings um, so we can relate. Now, why does he do this? That is the something that we need to understand and grasp. And so, children, for this last part, I I want you to draw a big, hot loaf of bread, okay? It just came out of the oven that you would really like to eat, okay? If you are drawing this morning, I want you to draw a big, hot loaf of bread that you'd really like to have, maybe sitting next to some butter. (laughs) (laughs) And while you're doing that, we will will investigate this, this, this question of, of why God would deign to do this, to condescend so that we would have some kind of understanding that obviously can't really be about who he really is because his greatness is unsearchable. I mean, would you want to reveal yourself to a grasshopper? I mean, if you had a grasshopper, it was your grasshopper. Would you really care about like being understood by a grasshopper in grasshopper language? <laughs> No, you wouldn't. But God is different. He is so different. Because he desires to be near. See verse 18? What's it about? If you acknowledge him in these ways, acknowledge how he, how he has condescended to speak to us through what he's made. If you call upon him in that way, you see he is near, verse 18. And what we see in that is his passion for us to know him. When we acknowledge through our experience of creation him, he is near. And this is something, as I say, it's as incomprehensible about God as God himself. 
This is greatness and self. He desires to be known by us, desires to be near by us. You know, Jesus at the Last Supper, he finally lets the cat out of the bag. The Last Supper with his disciples, he gather around and he explains to them the motivation for why he's doing what he's doing. And he prays. And what is his prayer? What is his prayer with the disciples, with the apostles at the Last Supper? He prays that they would know us. That these whom I love would, would know our glory, Father, that we have. That we have. What we see in that is God's motivation for what he's doing. He desires to be known by us. Desires for us to be near. Now, when we get this, when we get this, it opens up for us spiritual life. It comes alive for us because it answers the agnostic. If you're, if, if, if you're feeling like, you know, I, I can't relate. Do you see the way in which God has related to you? In the ways in which he has created things so that you would be able to relate to him. He is so great. He knows us, desires us to know him. So if you're having trouble that way, you need to know this about God. If you feel like, I don't, I don't know how to talk to God, realize he's been talking to you. So pray what God is to you through what you know, through what he has made. So you know, if you're in your bathroom, you could say, God, you are a shower. You cleanse me. You spend time in your kitchen. Say, God, you are my kitchen. You are the source of my nourishment from which food comes. Some of you, are, you know, really love your car. You say, God, you are my car. You take me where I need to go. <laughs> right? Or when you're afraid. Some of you get very afraid. When you're afraid, what, think about what happened in your life to make you feel really safe? What are the things that you've experienced that make you feel really safe? And say that to God, that he is that thing. Say, God, you are my 401k. That's how to pray. That's how to pray. And prayer isn't something, oh, I have to get to. It's something that comes out of you. Because of, of the way that God has condescended to us in our grasshopper terms. So this is where we're at now, friends. As we come to this time in our service, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be approaching to take bread. You know, God reveals himself in the most, you know, intricate ways, in the most kind of exalted ways in our relationship. So we look at our family, and we look at our families, and we see that we have families, and we say, ah, oh, God is triune. He is not just the one. He is also the three. And all the way down to bread, this is what happened at the Last Supper. Jesus said, okay, now you're going to get God, and you're going to get God as bread. This is what Jesus means when he said, I'm the bread of life. When you come forward now, as we're about to do, I want you to receive God and understand he's giving you himself as bread. That's what we're doing.
in the Eucharist here. You're coming forward and you're receiving God as bread. Let's do that. Would you stand with me?